You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. A moment of business before we get into today's show. Surf Splendor is completely free. But you can support the show, and we need your support to help grow the show organically. Do so by sharing the show with a friend. Tell them verbally, send them a link to our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com, or promote it via social media where you can find us, at Surf Splendor. Thanks in advance, and enjoy today's show. The first surf video I ever owned was called Jacked. I was 14 years old, the year was 1995, and I purchased it from Harbor Surfboards in Seal Beach, California. It was my introduction to a lot of surfers, um, some of whom actually became my favorites for a long time, like Chris Ward, Rat Boy, Pat O'Connell. I watched it daily, literally, like watched it over and over again. Um, I even actually took my stereo, put a blank cassette tape in there, and pushed it up against the television speakers, pushed record and play on the the, uh, stereo, if you remember how to do that, in order to record incoming audio onto the tape. So I had the the full soundtrack from the movie Jacked on an audio cassette that I could then play in my Walkman, you know, when I was at school or just doing whatever, driving to the beach. Um, So I loved it. I loved everything about the movie. And it was hugely influential in my early surfing experience. And almost as importantly, it really launched my love affair with the medium of surf film. The movie was produced, filmed, and edited by Tony Roberts. His name became just as important to me as any one of the surfers in the film. And I followed his career as he continued to make films and earn cover shots with his surf photography over the years. So, imagine my delight when I received an invite on a surf trip where Tony was invited to be the principal photographer. He's been living down in Central America, and he's the go-to resource for anyone traveling to the region who needs a photographer, filmer, tour guide, whatever. So, I went on the trip. We, um... He and I spent the week together and we had a blast. I told him the story I just shared with you about how much of a fan I was of his photography and of, you know, his surf films. And as it turns out, he's actually a big fan of podcasts and he's been listening to this show. So that was really cool for me to learn. And uh, anyway, we developed what I hope to be a long-term friendship. And on the last night of the trip, he and I sat down to record this conversation about his life, his work, and the act of surfing. This conversation was recorded on January 12, 2014, in a tent in a rainforest in Central America. My name is David Scales, and for today's episode of Surf Splendor, we bring you a portrait of Tony Roberts. My bathing suit's shining on the porch. My mother is crying upstairs. It's bad, man. You bad, man. And all I want is my Jessica. My Jessica. My Jessica. My Jessica. My Jessica. Mine, 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 mine. While I was introduced to Tony Roberts through surf film, the truth is he's equally accomplished in both film and still photography. What I learned in this interview was that his work isn't just confined to the surf industry. He's actually had a flourishing career in the skate industry simultaneously. I asked Tony how it all began and how he's been able to manage his workload while still surfing and skateboarding. Filmmaking came first. Okay. And that was a childhood hobby. Oh, okay. I made Super 8 films. Really? And um, would go to the swap meet and buy cameras and projectors. And 
I would film my friends surfing and skateboarding and make films for them and show them in my buddy's garage. Mm. And I also made homemade sound systems, um, wooden speakers and um, turntables with cassette decks. Wow. So by the time I was 14, 15, 16 years old, I was holding events, um, first in my friends' garages, then Grange Halls, and getting hundreds and up to thousands in the later years of kids coming to watch the films really? and the events, and that was TR Productions. And so I was kind of a nerdy film grom, um, but at the same time, I was a sponsored uh, surfer and skateboarder, and I was competing in the Big Ten um, Skate Park Series mm -hmm. in Northern California, and also in the WSA. So I was surfing the Invitationals and all over California. Um, and skateboarding, yet at the same time I had my hobby of documenting all of this, um, which was something I just did for fun and never really thought about being my career. Yeah. And it just kind of transformed as the years went on. Um, video came out, VH VHS tapes, and so those first two films were called Surf Skate and No Limits. And at that point in time, there was 10 videos on the market. Wow. They had Off the Wall, there was The Performers, um, and so it, at the very early stages of the video industry, I actually had one-fifth of the market yeah. as a child. <laughs> so it'd be like one new video a year, or maybe two or something, is that it? Exactly. I, um, I would make one video a year at that okay. point. Once I got, um, once the VHS yeah. industry came in, and those videos, uh, the distributor would sell them to surf shops and video okay. rental stores. Oh wow! Yeah. And do you um, have? Can you remember at all what the compensation was like back then? Um, I would get a royalty based on per tape sales. Okay. And the accounting and everything was all pretty loose back then. And yeah. I was just a kid, so it would have been nice to have been more business savvy in those years. Yeah. But I learned a lot, and um, I see it kind of as my education. Yeah. Yeah. So how did that? You said it slowly morphed over the years to becoming a profession. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about kind of how that happened, or maybe a moment when you realized where that happened, where you're not surfing as much and absolutely yeah. it was a flashpoint um, as a young kid going to the Civic Auditorium watching the big movies the big surf films um, I was always enamored with the Australian surfing movement the busting down the door era you yeah. know I was at a very impressionable age you know I was 12 years old in 1977 and so I always looked up so much to Robert Bartholomew and Mark Warren and that point in time in Australian surfing at Kira and that was always what I held kind of highest in, in my mind of, mm -hmm. of the top realm of surfing. So that was always my dream was to go to Australia and surf with them. By the time I graduated high school, um, bought a round trip, trip ticket to Australia. Wow. Um, I flew in uh, to Queensland bought mm -hmm. a car and traveled the entire East Coast for six months. Amazing. I was so, able to see the best surfers my age who I'd read about and and wanted to see. The like, guys you want, like Rabbit and stuff, you're able well, to Well, no, they're a generation above me. Yeah. But the guys my age were like Damien Hardman, oh, okay. Barton Lynch. And when I got there and I saw them surf, like I was impressed with how they competed. and But I quickly realized that, whoa, my group of friends, in my opinion, blow these guys away. Really? I mean, because we were already surfing above the lip. Guys like? Like Steve Price, uh, Mark Machado, um, Chris Gallagher, Adam Rapogel, Peter Mel. Yeah. Um, you know, this was at a time when basically in Australia that was still kind of Gary Elkerton was the, was the, was the model yeah. of early 80s power hacks right and we encompass that in our surfing as well mm -hmm. but 
it was that was the flash point in time after that trip when I said I need to come home document my friend surfing because this is something serious this is a serious movement that needs to be documented and shared mm. um, now this was coming from my opinion because I was 50-50 skater surfer sure so my opinion of what good surfing was um, might have been a little before its time yeah but it didn't jibe with what the surfing establishment's opinion of good surfing was it's important to understand the social context here Tony is from Santa Cruz California and because of the skate influence in California at the time there was a different style of surfing beginning to emerge from the region uh, we had a surfer by the name of Kevin Reed from yeah, Santa Cruz, I've heard him. who was the inventor of the aerial, and he was boosting and sticking airs consistently in the 70s. At the same time, he was a top-level pro skater. Oh, he was. I didn't know that. So on the same weekend, he would finish. He would win a Hester Series event in Southern California, and then go to Trestles and make the finals in the Stubbies. Crazy. So he was actually the last athlete who would be able to be at the very top level of both sports. Mm -hmm. And this particular person was the inventor of the aerial maneuver in the 70s. So by the early 80s, um, there was a group of disciples, um, me and my friends, yeah. who kind of took his style to perhaps a slightly more vertical approach. Um, like Kevin Reed's aerials were kind of like extended floaters. Okay. Like he'd get high, but he'd do them very long and with twin fins. And so by the time three fins came out, surfers like Steve Price took the whole bottom turn to top turn vertical approach above the lip. And then that's kind of the next level of aerial surfing from the very, very first guys who did it. Where was skating at at that time? Was it coming out of the lip? In the pools, or had that already been done? Absolutely. Okay. Um, like, that's kind of where it all came from. And yeah. it was the, that point in time, kind of the Dogtown Z-Boys era. Right. The end of the 70s, where Kevin Reed was skating with Tony Alva and Jay Adams on a peer level in Southern California. And then he was coming back to Santa Cruz and kind of taking that approach that, that pro skating at that point in time was bull riding. It was pools. And so it was transition-based, which mm -hmm. totally relates to skate to surfing. Right. And so that's why there was that crossover. So skateboarding at that point in time was just getting above the lip. And so Kevin Reed was the one to really bridge the gap. And years later, other guys started doing it too. You had Keckley in Florida, Davy Smith in Santa Barbara. Shortly thereafter, Fletcher. Mm -hmm. And there was kind of one guy in, in each region who was doing good airs. Yeah. But in Santa Cruz, there was probably 15 to 20 guys doing that. And it was flying way beneath the radar. At that point in time, the status quo of surfing, you had guys running the industry that were ex-top pro surfers that saw the aerial style of surfing as a threat. Right. So there was a few years where it wasn't really able to penetrate the mentality and the mindset of, of the surfing mainstream. It was kind of seen as a sideshow, you know, by the late 80s, 90s, when people started doing airs, it was kind of like, oh, flying squirrels, you know, not really legit, three to the beach right. kind of mentality was still really prevalent. And, and so that illuminance of perspective, personally, to say that, well, this is what the surfing establishment thinks is good surfing, and what I think is good surfing, yeah. this needs to be shared and captured. Yeah. And it was very fringe yeah, in, the, yeah. in the 80s. By the time the 90s rolled around, we had a whole new generation of surfers coming out of Santa Cruz that were freak talents. On top of this amazing natural ability, they grew up seeing people stick airs early, early on in their youth. So to them, that was kind of normal. So that was kind of the flea, rat boy, Barney generation. And at that point in time, I was contributing to Transworld Skateboard Magazine. Oh, okay. And learning to shoot the most high level of skate photography, in my opinion, which was that of Jay Grant Britton, mm -hmm. uh, Todd Swank, um, 
also guys from Thrasher like Bryce Knights who were revolutioning, revolutionizing skate photography. And I was just getting into shooting surf photography and would visualize these skate photos in the magazine and try to conceptualize how I could shoot that same photo in the water. Interesting. But I had that group of surfers who were already busting airs and already surfing above the lip. And so I was able to visualize these skate style photos and then had the surfers to go out and practice with to right. achieve them. Right. My goal in, in that style of photography was to shoot the peak of the maneuver at the closest moment. So maybe three inches away from a guy doing an air five feet above the lip. So of course pole cams were incorporated, kind of dolphin projection, like water polo techniques, you know, catapulting out of the lip with the fisheye. Yeah. Just doing anything to get that full frame moment of the action. And in that point in time, that's when surf photography changed from being a photo of the wave with the surfer as a detail to the photo as the surfer with the wave as a detail. Interesting. I've never thought of that transition before. Like a good skate photo, a fisheye skate photo, you have the subject full frame. And somewhere in the corner, you have to have incorporated in the composition where the skater's taking off from and where he's landing. Right. So I was achieving that exact same result. It might be just a corner of the lip where he's taking off and then a corner of the lip of where he's landing. Right. So you can see where he's coming from and where he's going to. Right. But the frame is filled with action yeah. and it's from inches away. Shooting with a fisheye lens you have to be extremely close to take it. Right. So I had years and years and years of practice shooting this skateboarding. The nuts and bolts of getting that close and yeah. being that calm under pressure. And being that I can do all the same surfing maneuvers as the guys I was shooting, I could tell by the way their rail was set as they're coming off the lip, if they were solid enough for me to move in to get that close to the action or if not, to go underwater in a millisecond. Yeah. Because without that ability, as many who tried to get my angles after found out, you'll get hit by the board. Considering that Tony was drawing inspiration for his surf photography from the skate world, and a lot of Santa Cruz surfers were pioneering the aerial movement, I was curious if any other surf photographers were using the same techniques and equipment that Tony was experimenting with. Like at that point in time in surf photography, like even before me, Sonny Miller was getting photos like that and even with fill flash. Um, but he didn't really specialize in the skate angle. Okay. You know, since he was shooting with the fisheye and since he also shot with some guys who could get above the lip and since he also was a skater and a surfer, he was one guy who was getting that style of photo but he was doing so many different projects at that point of time that the difference with me was I just obsessed on just doing that every single day. Right. And um, also at that point in time, Aaron Lloyd yeah. was getting very similar angles shooting bodyboarding. Oh, okay. And um, besides that, fish eyes were used like way before in surf photography and water yeah. photography, way before I came along. Sure. But it was used mostly for barrel shots. Guys like Don King, right. Chris Van Lennep, uh, you know, were fisheye masters, but it was still kind of shooting the wave and the surfer was a detail in the photo. Um, so shooting a skate style photo, um, no, no one else was doing that. While the skate world dictated Tony's style of composition, there was one key person who helped Tony fit into the surf world's media objectives. Well, all this was taking place at the time that I was starting to work at Surfing Magazine, and Flame was very instrumental in fine-tuning my look. Okay. And when I first started submitting to Surfing Magazine, my photos, the angles were there, but I was technically very raw. And Flame was a very, very uh, stickler for technical detail so he started at first paying for film and processing and telling me exactly how he wanted these photos to look mm. um, which for him was perfectly front lit always want to see the subject's face you want to see the logos 
don't pull the film out unless it's blue sky and he really liked that studio look in the water so I think that it was kind of my angles mixed with what Flame wanted to see that formed surfing magazines look to the mid to late 90s at the same time the Santa Cruz crew blew up at the same exact moment as my photography it was a it was a full team effort yeah and being that Santa Cruz is the biggest wetsuit market in the world so we had the power of O'Neill and then all the other companies that sponsored riders like Rip Curl and early Billabong wetsuits body glove there was enough industry involvement for us to get our foot in the door and I think perhaps combined with the fresh new photography angles and with Flame picking the shots and seeing a bit of himself in all of my work, politically we were on the right side to kind of take over. What did that do for Santa Cruz and the it, surfers there? It put us on the map. Like, yeah. I mean, Before, guys like Kevin Reed, you know, whose name maybe a lot of people wouldn't know compared to Rat Boy, you know? Absolutely. Like, there were great photographers in Santa Cruz um, way before me, guys like Bob Barber, Chris Klopf, and they were shooting Kevin Reed and getting photos run and Breakout and Surfer Magazine. and yeah. um, But it was just kind of one guy at that point. And then after Kevin, you had Steve Price and kind of my generation. But once the 90s came around, it was 20 guys yeah. that were amazing yeah. above the lip. Tony spent the next few years traveling around the world making surf films and shooting photos. As I've researched this episode, I found a lot of Tony's images that I vividly remember from my youth, and even some that I had taped to my bedroom wall. He got tons of work done during those years, but it didn't come without suffering and sacrifice. Pardon the rain in the background audio of this portion of the interview. I've had all my equipment stolen a couple times. Um, on the road and generally in my career I would spend all my money on on my equipment and so I'd find myself at absolute ground zero with no money and no equipment a couple different times in my career crazy and had to look in the mirror and say hey man you have all the stuff you've produced to show for your skills you have all your ability laugh at that time to get better equipment do better films get better audio equipment that stuff sucked. You know, I want better gear now. And use that as my advantage to come up stronger and harder. Yeah. And so that happened many times. So I became kind of a guerrilla filmmaker. Um, and that's what it made me. Now, as far as a surfer, I was suffering inside. Because I wasn't able to surf. Any surfer who's not surfing especially if you're sitting on the beach watching it every day and yeah. filming it and going through all the blood, sweat, and tears to find finally those perfect days and not participate, that'll kill you if you're a surfer. So my 20s were spent um, dedicating myself entirely to the craft and suffering greatly inside. Brutal. Yeah. Um. That, this is a side note, we'll get back to the surfing mm -hmm. and the timeline, but as a side note, you've seen the medium of surf filmmaking change a lot from when you were a kid and there was only 10 videos on the market to now with the internet where there's a thousand new ones a day, it seems like, being produced by kids with iPhones, you know. Um, what has that transition been like, the medium, and do you still have the same love for the medium that you grew up with and you know the reason why you got into it was because you loved it how is that different now wow that's a great question it's changed so much in so many different ways um, you know of course early on it was film so very few people had the patience to actually cut and splice a yeah. film together add the soundtrack and finish the project yeah, or so, the resource to even start it. Or the resource to even start it. Yeah. 
When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Um, so not many people could actually do it. A lot of people would, would start on the project, but finishing was a whole other deal. Yeah. It would take years and, and a lot of time and, and effort. And basically once film changed to video, kind of people could start using consumer cameras to film surfing and that's when Taylor Steele came along and he completely changed the entire surf film medium it went from slow motion a lot of weird angles and trippy music to all shot from the beach um, post-punk uh, fast music and kind of more like surf porn you know, not much of a storyline, not much creativity involved, just nuts and bolts sessions, which the surfing market responded to incredibly. Yeah. And so the young surfers, there was a point in time in the mid-90s where they weren't that psyched anymore on the beautiful slow-mo 16-millimeter films, and they just wanted that kind of quick, fast cut, um, generic surf video style. And then there were hundreds of surf filmmakers that copied Taylor. And that's when surf filmmaking really made a, a big turn. Then, once the internet came along, um, surf viewers' attention span got really short. I mean, the old surf films used to be two hours with an intermission. And then the early videos were about the same length, 90 minutes. And then Taylor Steele would do like an hour or under an hour. And then with the internet, went from that down to 15 minutes, 10 minutes, and now an average video is one to two minutes. Yeah. So they're catering to the short attention span. And you know, the kids, surfers generally are not a very creative group in reality as, as contrary as non-surfers might think but most surfers come from kind of a suburban uh, reality and surf small waves and want to surf exactly like the guys they watch in the video and try to ride the exact same board and so it's become a little bit robotic and now with the electronic music as the soundtrack it's um, pretty silly, actually. Yeah. But I think that it will run its course and run a cycle, and you'll start seeing more creative stuff because of the glutton, the kind of flooding of content. Yeah. To where people are only going to want to watch um, 
something with substance as the surf market becomes more conscious. Yeah. And more interested in different styles of music and different styles of surfing and different boards and you're starting to slowly see that happen. Yeah, this conversation's come up a couple times where it's like, I think because technology makes it available for everybody, everybody thinks they're an artist and so there probably will be a renaissance of artists that emerge. The question is, there's so much white noise out there that will that talent actually emerge or will it just fall in with all the other white noise? You know what I mean? Like that's a true concern of mine. Absolutely. Like, will the next Taylor Steele or or Tony Roberts, for that matter, find a voice? It's totally dependent on the consciousness of the future market. Yeah. Are they going to want robotic, um, just kind of not very creative content? Or are they going to want something that's more sensory and more fulfilling than just the nuts and bolts of doing a frontside air reverse and right. an alley-oop. Right. What, what about the question of your love for the medium? How has that evolved or changed? Or do you love it anymore? Um, I really do. Okay. And it's because of the medium and the shift in the medium. It's so fresh. Yeah. It's so new. I feel like being that anybody can produce that I have to keep my game sharper than ever. Yeah. Or I'll be outdated. You know, not only do I have to continue to come up with new angles and continue to find new styles of music and continue to do firsts in video editing and photo angles, but I have to do it quicker and in the proper format to where it reaches more people. Right. And I never have ever stopped visualizing and producing new techniques right. of editing, um, music choice, angles, first and foremost, yeah. and um, putting it together in my own way. Whose edits do you see out there online now who you enjoy and appreciate? Skateboarding and snowboarding videos. Oh, okay. Um, they tend to use uh, really creative music, and uh, it's more rich. You know, it's more more deeper content matter. Well, I've I've felt it is because their um, their playground is consistent, and so they can plan out shots and kind of create a narrative or a storyline and go out and shoot for that narrative, you know? That's exactly why. Yeah. But using that same frame of mind shooting surfing, you can bring it up the next level. You can. The question is what you just asked. Will the market respond? I then asked Tony about his body of surf film work that spans the last 30 years. Yeah, I made probably around 20 surf and skate titles in my career that were on video. And I'd like to think that each film I made, I progressed as a filmmaker. Yeah. And accomplished some sort of first, whether it was the first time that style of music was in a video, or the first time that an angle had been captured or an editing technique had been used. When was the first one made and when was the last one made? Like, give me bookends on the dates. Right. Well, I'm still making videos. Um, the first video I made was um, actually in 1985. And the last one I made was last year. A video called Espiritu de Surf Latino America. And that means spirit of surf in Latin America. And it features all the best pros from Latin America and Indonesia, Hawaii, and all the best waves in the world. Yeah. You have Gabriel Vieran, Hilbert Brown, Carlos Munoz, and all the kind of new performers from this region. And so I continue to produce videos. It's really hard to discuss Tony's surfing experience without discussing his skateboarding. 
I asked him what his current skate experience is like and how it's different being 48 years old. Well, skateboarding has always been as big of my life, part of my life as surfing up until probably this last chapter. And I still skate a lot, but kind of taking surfing to the next level personally. But um, so I was able to do Christian Hosoi and Danny Way and Mike Vallely and all these other like amazing skaters, uh, Eric Dressen, Tom Knox. I was able to do like some of those guys' first video segments that became pretty iconic um, video parts and skaters. And that was incredibly inspiring and uh, very special. It seems like, you know, you can pursue surfing your whole life and it'll add probably years to your life. Mm -hmm. Skateboarding, on the other hand, seems like it might be a little less forgiving on your body. How's that challenge been, dealing with that? It's so true. Um, however, like when you skateboard your entire life, you get extremely competent and solid. You just get kind of better and better at the basics. It's almost like surfing, you know? You can never like stop working on your bottom turn. And I mean, there'll probably be some day when I'm not trying to bust air surfing because I get too old. That day hasn't happened yet, but um, skateboarding, that's already happened. And I'm not dipping into my bag of tricks yeah. at all. You know, there's a hundred tricks that I used to do that I won't try to do now. Yeah. But still going really fast and, and doing like what are basic tricks to me, you know, an average onlooker might be impressed and, and stoked, but they don't understand how easy that is for somebody who's done it their entire life. But you don't slam as much when you're not learning new tricks. Although there are those slams, you know, a kid might drop into the you know, skate park without looking when you're already going like 100 miles an hour and you can't avoid them. Right. So it's different now, you know, I've taken, you know, take a slam now and again and instead of just jumping right up, I like lie at the bottom of the bowl and just ask everyone to stop skating for like five or 10 minutes <laughs> and just kind of regather myself and try not to black out. Wow climb out of the bowl and into the shade and just kind of lie there for a while. You know, it's, it's a lot different now as an old guy. Yeah. But you got to pay to play, and the, the pluses and the satisfaction are, are so exhilarating that was, I don't really see stopping anytime Sweet. soon. Sweet. Tony and I got the call to dinner at this point in the conversation. Over dinner, he told me about how, in his desire to revitalize his personal surfing experience, he relocated from Santa Cruz, California, down to Santa Cruz, Costa Rica. He built a skate ramp in the jungle, surfed warm water, and shot photos and videos with all the traveling professionals whom would visit that part of the world. The now defunct Transworld Surf Magazine was one of his key employers, and they would send a group of surfers to Tony every month, and he became the go-to photographer for that region of the world. Then, in 2003, Tony got the opportunity of a lifetime when the Quicksilver Crossing was traveling through Central America, and they had an opening for a surf photographer. The Quicksilver Crossing was a mission to explore um, the, the world and find new waves, um, check the coral reefs, and educate the local people as to the plight of this fragile ecosystem and how they can save them. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a group called reefcheck.org yeah. on, on board, and everybody should definitely um, check that site out and support that cause. And so everywhere we went, we had a scientist on board that would teach us and the local people about the coral reefs everywhere we went. And Quicksilver really just wanted to celebrate all these local cultures where all these amazing waves break and combine that with the surfing element. So it was the best surfers in the world um, that rode for Quicksilver and even other companies flying in, doing strike missions everywhere the boat was. So we'd have a different group of surfer coming on and off the boat every week or two. How did, how did you link up with them? Basically, they were in Nicaragua, and you know they also rotated photographers on and off the boat quite a bit. And when I got on the boat, 
I was the only Spanish-speaking person on board at the moment, so I was able to translate with all the different official business that was needing to be done. Everything from the military check-ins, which you, every time you enter Nicaraguan Harbor you have to check in with the military, and it's a pretty decent little grilling, um, to getting satellite dishes out of customs in Managua, and all kinds of different um, translating jobs. So that was kind of how I got my foot in the door. And then they were really happy with my photography. Um, they were kind of having difficulty getting people on the boat to stay on board to shoot video and write the daily website, the captain's log. Uh -huh. And I ended up writing the captain's log and doing video and doing photos and translating. Wow. So we'd have other people rotating on and off the boat, but I was kind of the staff uh, media guy there for three years. Crazy. So you lived on the boat for three years. Yep. Where, where'd you go? Um, basically, I'd be on the boat for about two or three weeks at a time and then off the boat for a week. Okay. And that, the time I was off the boat was generally when it was the Roxy Girls or Slater. Like the kind of top shelf sh shoots were always Hornbaker. And I did a few shoots with Horny also. But pretty much when he wasn't on the boat, I would be on there with whoever they'd send on the boat, and other photographers also. And Where'd you go? So I got on the boat in Nicaragua, and then we went down through Costa Rica, Panama, through the canal to Colombia and Venezuela, over to um, the southern Caribe, to Tobago, and then worked our way all the way up the Caribbean, um, I got to visit most islands in that chain in the kind of sailing tour and, and surfing and doing promos the whole way. And then we went to the east coast of the United States. I went from Florida up to New Hampshire, then back down in the Hudson River in to the Great Lakes, then down the Mississippi River into the Gulf, and then through the intercoastal waterway, then oh, back to the Caribbean, to Puerto Rico and Dominican Republic, and then back through the Panama Canal, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, uh, Mexico, all the way up to California, and that's when I got off the boat. And the boat continued on to Alaska, and that was the end of the crossing. Wow. What an amazing journey. I mean, that seems like an ideal gig for any surf photographer. Yeah, it would have had to have been the biggest reward for my career. And just the fact that they kind of wanted that misto aspect. And I have the ability to go into a cultural situation and take photos of the people with them feeling at ease. And it tends to show in the photograph. Mm -hmm. So they had the magazine Explorations, and they wanted a lot of that kind of National Geographic style of photography. Yeah which for me is so easy and so it, it was really a reward for spending kind of all those years living the village life and just kind of getting into the, the cultural aspect of, of these different countries. What did you do from there afterwards? You said you got off in California. Mm -hmm, I got off in California and then um, really really at that point in time got into my surfing again so I was off the boat I was so inspired from seeing all the great surfing that I saw and you know I had been working with Xanadu on on tiny surfboards that just worked amazing in all the spots that I surf and just getting really really deep into the yoga and the nutrition been vegetarian since I was a teenager and started to see that as a 40-year-old I was still improving in my surfing and my health and my life and my flexibility and yeah. my strength and got really excited and inspired to see how long I could take it. A kind of the new emphasis in life, just the new chapter of surfing right. again. So 
did you stay in California or did you move back to Costa Rica to pursue that goal? No, I never moved back to California. In fact, when I got off the boat, I was only there a couple days. But I was straight back down to Central America and uh, with my new daughter and new kind of lease on life surfing-wise. So now I'm 48 years old and been competing in the Masters contest that I can get into. The Dominican Republic uh, has an amazing event called the Master Surfer Union every year. And you get really good surfers from there and Puerto Rico and Brazil and the States. And my next goal is to get in the ISA, yeah. represent the United States, because I still hold American passport. And um, I'd like to bring above the lip surfing into that realm. And it's kind of my main goal now is to see how far I can I can continually improve my surfing and inspire others because surfing now with the modern technology we have with the nutrition um, I'll mention yoga again because I feel it's, it's super key these are thousands of years of knowledge that have been passed down to really really benefit someone who wants to be flexible and strong yeah and for surfing it, it just there's no limit to how far you can take it combining those two um, I want to inspire people because they lose hope so early we have so many friends that they get into their 30s and they just kind of lose hope mm -hmm. and it's hard for a lot of people mainly because of their programming of how they feel they need to work so hard and sacrifice that surfing time which is what really is what's going to make them happy in the end for yeah. some people sure for others they're just a materialistic person and money will make them happy for those who get happiness from surfing I want to inspire them to not lose sight of the dream and yeah. to keep surfing and to put effort into being flexible and healthy so that they can surf into their 30s 40s 50s yeah 60s I mean, imagine Slater in 10 years, 20 years. Yeah. And then the generations that follow after him, it'll just be a given. Everyone will know they can do that. Right. You know? And I'm, you know, 10 years older than he is, almost. And so I don't have that person to look towards. And the people before me didn't have that person to look towards. Right. And as a kid, there was nobody who could ride a skateboard and rip mm -hmm. in their late 20s, much less early 30s, much less early 40s, much less late 40s. I mean, Tony Hawk's my age. Yeah. He's still inventing tricks. So a small child now is going to see Sonny Garcia and Tom Curran ripping, you know, pushing 50 years of age. Tony Hawk, you know, these guys my age that are still just at an amazing level of skateboarding. And they'll know they can do that their entire life if they want to. Yeah. But for most people they're going to really have to buckle down on taking care of them mind and their body yeah who are your surfing influences well as a kid I was in the WSA and the same age as Tom Curran mm -hmm. so I got to see him surf in the invitationals and compete with you know all the great surfers you know my age um but then, as I moved into just a really photographer video chapter, it was just watching and learning everybody and not getting to surf that much to where I could really utilize it. And then when I finally got my time, my surfing chapter in life, yeah. my goals were to carve like Adam Rapogel and do airs like Ratboy. Really? And I watched both of their technique so closely, shooting water shots with them thousands of times to where really learning their tricks and how they surf the way they do so that was kind of my initial goal I think moving into my surfing chapter in my 30s was to combine those two guys surfing and I, I think I've just tried to build on that as the years go by. Tony's art and technique has evolved over the years but much of his early experiences have resurfaced in his current work. Those early events that I did, 
basically would get the entire town together that were interested in surfing and create a frenzy. You know, we'd have punk rock bands or all different types of music going through the sound system, then the imagery on the wall. And that transformed into my career as an editor, a filmmaker, a, a photographer, all this different stuff, and then kind of lost touch with all that. And years later, I had the opportunity to start doing slideshows and putting on music out here in the jungle at the bars and the restaurants in various areas where I saw a need for that. So when I got off the crossing, I bought a totally mobile sound system hmm. that fits in my truck and started doing DJ gigs with the imagery on the wall harking back to my early days of TR Productions and kind of bring my entire career full circle. Sounds like an art project almost. Yeah, it's been incredibly fun because um, I'm a connoisseur of reggae music. My parents bought me reggae albums when I was a child and all the iconic players came to Santa Cruz and I was good friends with reggae promoters. And I've also been extremely interested in the music of different countries that I've traveled to and lived in. Mm -hmm. So I'm really interested in Latin music. Started collecting cumbia, salsa, merengue, bachata. And those are the styles of music that all the local people like. Yet, I love rap, rock, all these different types of music that foreigners like. Yeah. So I started doing these events that would really get all the local people and the tourists and foreign residents together because I have that cross-section of music. Right. And then the images from the day session on the wall. Oh, so, that's where the imagery's from? Exactly. Wow. So, my DJ name is DJ Twanis, and it's kind of opened a bunch of new doors in this chapter of my life um, with all kinds of different um, events. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, music featured prominently in your early life and career and artwork, so that's an unexpected way for it to kind of resurface, you know? Or Absolutely. Have you, um, I mean, the next logical step would be making music. Have mm -hmm. you ever pursued that, or do you have any talent in that respect? I love to sing. If there is a love, you have to bear that you can't carry Right up the road I'll share your love If you just call me Lean on me Lean on me When you're not strong When you're not strong I'll be your friend I'll help you carry on knows me knows that I'm not afraid to pick up a microphone at any given time and yeah. belt out a number or two. Yeah. Um, I've been in a few bands. Um, it's an ongoing pursuit and interest. And uh, we actually have a group in our area in Costa Rica and a recording studio. And so we're constantly um, doing different different music projects and you know, I also do pottery, you know, on the wheel and these other, like, pursuits in life. It just accentuates the surfing so much. Mm. You know, you're out in this beautiful tropical environment and you're getting creative and it all kind of comes back to the surfing at the end of it. Yeah. But um, they're just pursuits that, that make a person feel whole. You know, because I feel like life is to be enjoyed and to live and... So many people carry around so much fear, and action cures fear. And it's, I'm at the point where I just want to sing, I want to dance. Any new dance I can learn, I want to learn. You know, any new martial arts, any new movement, any new creative endeavor, I just want it. Yeah. You know? 
and being a father and seeing my daughter just learning all these new experiences and just getting so stoked it really brings it out in me too and there's no limit to the different things you can learn and sets of emotions that you can go through and and then use that to inspire others yeah your career is obviously still going and um, you know the end remains to be seen but do you have a highlight thus far in the career um, the highlight of my career would have to have been being on the team that made the video metaphysical. Really? That was during the uh, G-Land contest. Yeah. I can't remember the year, maybe 96 or something. Okay. But it was the top 44, and Quicksilver invited a group of uh, legends. There was Tom Carroll and Wayne Lynch and Mark Warren and Jimmy Banks and all these amazing legends and quick had Jeff Hornbaker um, put together the team that would make the video and he brought Albie Fowles on out of retirement um, from the surfing realm Albie had been making these amazing videos in Southeast Asia and India and um, so he produced the video and then Don King and I were brought on to film it and so to be on that team was definitely the biggest honor of my career and the making of the project and the creative meetings on a nightly basis and working with Albie who's just a genius and Don yeah. and Hornbaker was the highlight of my career. Wow. Got any stories from those from that trip? That trip I was definitely the low man on the totem pole and we were using these really heavy 16 millimeter cameras and, and battery packs. And at low tide, it was TR, get out to the end of the reef. We want full frame, backlit, climbing and dropping, silhouettes. And to just walk out on that reef at low tide with heavy camera equipment was a big challenge. And, you know, filming and just film, changing film canisters and, and just. Whatever they asked of me, I was just so eager and honored and stoked to just put in 100% every moment. Yeah. Which is how I am with any work I do, and even if I'm just shooting a tourist surfing or I'm shooting like one of the best guys in the world, I'll still always have the same work ethic. Yeah. But the sense of pride that I felt being on that trip with everyone there was beyond words for me. After the heavy workload of his early life, I was curious if Tony feels as if he's captured balance in recent years. You know, I'm an extremist, and my lifestyle is excessively based on surfing. I wake up in the morning and everything I do is to facilitate that next surf session. Yeah. However, I have found a great balance in my work because now I just only work on my own terms. I only do jobs that I like. My main focus in work is shooting photos of tourists surfing. It's become a new career that emerged with digital photography. Yeah. It's very satisfying to shoot photos of everybody and know that I very well might be shooting the best shot of their life. Right. And to see the happiness on their face and to be able to share that with surfers of all levels is it's really special. And whether I'm surfing or whether I'm working or whatever I'm doing, my goal is just, just really be present and compassionate, just link of this incredible interconnectedness of, of every species on this planet yeah. and learn to find my place in that, in the overall balance and see exactly where I do fit in. I think just being present will give me the best opportunity to 
utilize every opportunity that I'm given to be here now. Seems like you're doing a good job of it. You seem centered and you seem like you're in a good place. Thank so, you. Well done. Thanks, bud. Lifelong pursuit, but you're close. <laughs> a work in progress. Yeah. Okay, short goodbyes, long hellos. That's right. No goodbyes. Yeah. You heard the man, surf more and get on a yoga program. Revitalize your stoke. Thank you, Tony Roberts, sage advice. Almost all of the music from today's episode is either from Tony himself or was plucked from his mid-90s surf films. The music credits, examples of Tony's work, and video of him surfing can be found on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com. We're also posting his work on social media, where you can follow us at Surf Splendor. Rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher. Share it with a friend so the show continues to grow. The more people listening, the more shows we will be able to produce. Thank you for listening to A Portrait of Tony Roberts. Until next time, this is David Scales for Surf Splendor saying, Mahalo. Mahalo.